This is recording. There's no feedback. Thank you very much. It's almost 4 p.m. on Thursday, August 13th, 2015. I'm parked uh, just temporarily at University of Toronto, their Scarborough campus, uh, because it's just off Kingston Road, which is near where my church is, which is where I've just come from. Uh, I met with a man called John, who guided me through the steps. He said there are, in his mind, there's two kinds of things to consider and one is uh, process and one is content um, I'm simplifying it but that's what he said and the process were the steps we go through each Sunday and what follows what and who does what in each part and then he said but to him the content is what's most important and uh, content is what I have to come up with that is my job for this Sunday so here we are Thursday afternoon I have not written anything, and I'm actually further back than I was when they first asked me. Uh, I, I chose this title, Lessons Learned from Nigeria. I really painted myself into a corner with that because I wonder how many lessons there were. And would it not be better, more authentic to talk about the bigger picture? And then another voice says, no, 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 you'll be wandering all over the place uh, you'll lo- you'll lo- be losing focus, and then you're going to get into your group therapy in 74 or whatever it was, and um, that will just suck up all your time. So scale it back. Try and work with uh, Nigeria as a, as a bit of a constraining factor. And you know I don't like constraining factors. So I'm, I really am confused. I've got to get this together. I was glad to have the... Um, time with him to go over. I'll be sitting up front and then he'll invite me up when it's time after the uh, introduction. Do you want to hear the introduction? Do you want to just hear the introduction? Um, Ken's bio. Ken has been an ESL teacher for most of his adult life, teaching in Canada, Nigeria, and Japan. He currently teaches English part-time at Centennial College here in Scarborough, and every summer since 1993, he has brought high school students from Japan to study English and learn about Canada. He's married to a Japanese woman, Naoko, and has two sons, aged 23 and 25. Ken's hobbies include reading, photography, and podcasting. He has put out more than 500 one-hour personal journal episodes over the past 10 years. He is also very interested in mediation, counseling, and personal growth, and still feels he has a long way to travel on this life journey of self-discovery. Uh, I wrote that, so that's why it's not very good. But uh, nobody else knows me all that well, so I pretty well had to be the one to do that. Uh, He said I can change it, modify it, add, subtract, divide, do whatever I want. Uh, I'm probably going to add a little note about uh, what it means to me to have found this church. But really, I've got to get on this. I've got to pull out, okay, what is it? Because he really did make the point that, hey... This is what, this is the sermon. This is what I'm supposed to be giving things to people that they can take away. And it's something I always say I want to do on the Dixon James podcast and always feel I've failed at. So here we are in front of a live studio audience at the West Hill United Church. Um, it really is up to me to come up with something. And I'm going to have to search deep and hard. And I better get the hell out of here and get home and start doing this. And yet, <laughs> there's a part of me, the lazy part, of course, that I don't want to sit at the computer and do it. I, I don't, I don't know. So, it's not a question of doing and writing. It's a question of really thinking deeply. And I guess I'm trying to get myself into that mindset that how do I get to the place that will 
allow the ideas, the meaning, the content, the purpose to come forth. Because you can't sort of go at it and, and sort of, okay, I'll, I'll do this, no, I won't do that, okay, I'll say this, yeah. I mean, do I go and try and look back at Nigeria and say, okay, what were the lessons learned? I mean, I've got two of them, but is it really, it's not even about Nigeria, it's about me. See, this is the problem. This is the problem. The only thing I can talk about, the only thing I do talk about is myself. And, and whoa, 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 whoa. That might be okay for a personal podcast, but is that really what I should be doing at this church? Should I not reach beyond myself? By the way, this is the first recording I've done since I've been home from that absolutely wonderful, wonderful study tour, followed by that little trip to the Laurentians and a day around Montreal with John Meadows. It was great but man, I came home and the holiday's over. I've got a whole lot more to say about my cat and the fact that my cat is now an indoor and outdoor cat. And it's 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 made me very, very nervous. And uh, I've got to deal with that. So maybe what I'll do is I'll go home, let the cat out, sit on the deck, and try and do some writing, some note-taking, some thinking, some reflection and uh, see if that gets me anywhere. And then later on I'll come back uh, and talk about uh, what it feels like to have Yuki running around untethered. Uh, but I just have to shake this little bag of treats and she comes back. Well, that reminds you, i got to buy some cat food too, but yeah, I can do that tomorrow. Oh, boy. i got a lot to do, and there is a deadline. I work better under deadlines, but... As I've said before, and I've mentioned it so many times on this podcast leading up to this, hey, I've been asked, I'm honored, I'm flattered, but I really, really, really want to make it count. I really, really want to make it worthwhile. And uh, I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know what shape that's going to take. I don't know what words I have to give to actually share. I don't want to get up there and cry. You know, if I get too close to the bone... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, stay tuned, and whatever happens, uh, I hope I'm going to be able to set up a recording of myself talking. I don't know if that'll work with a live mic, but uh, I'll try. So, this is Ken. Oh, by the way, I have been listening to the recordings I've done from uh, my On the Road, and I really, really like them and join them. Uh... I guess because of the other sound effects and the other things I recorded besides myself, and sometimes I come in there, and I don't make a whole lot of sense, and the references are so specific, so narrow, so I, so much inside baseball, as they say, that it probably doesn't have much meaning for other people. Uh, I was going to share them with the Japanese teachers I traveled with this summer, and I thought, no, when it comes to my part, they're they're going to just wonder, what the hell is that all about? So, anyway, yeah, enough me and my doubts and everything else. i got to go. i got work to do. And, um, yeah, stay tuned. Bye for now. Sometimes, when I burn my
feeling a little shaky. Uh, I'm used to standing in front of a class of ESL students, and when I lose my thread or wander off topic, I just stop and say, okay, get out your textbooks. And uh, I see they've taken away the books in this particular place, so I have nothing to fall back on today. Um, I put on my loudest shirt because uh, it's a reflection of the kind of clothing we used to wear in Nigeria. Uh, unfortunately, I've grown out of any of my Nigerian clothing. I'm going to talk about um, events that I experienced 35 years ago. It's a very long time ago, but uh, the experience was so powerful, these things just haven't been forgotten. They've become a part of my life. And so this talk might seem a little bit strange. I'm going to just pick a few particular incidents that stood out or still stand out in my mind, and then maybe later on I'm going to try and tie this together with the present situation. Uh, we all hear about Nigeria in the news and it, it just saddens me terribly, uh, the violence, the hatred, the animosity that's going on. Uh, when I lived there, first went over in 1980, uh, they had just gone back to a civilian uh, government for the first time in, in quite a while and there was an awful lot of hope that people would live together. You, you, we all know they went through a horrible war, the Biafran War. And um, it, there, there, it seemed a time of peace, and I was able to travel to absolutely every part of that country. The only danger was on the highways. I'll talk about that a little bit. But you felt tension, but it felt safe. 
people, the Muslims, Christians, lived together, they traded together, there was that animosity, but not the degree of violence that we're seeing today. So it's, uh, it's sad, but the Nigeria I'm going to talk about, we're going back in time, 35 years. Um, I went over with an organization called CUSO, which was funded by the Canadian government at that time. It would not be funded under the government we have today by any means. This was a, quite a left-leaning organization, and we didn't go over as do-gooders. I, I went over purely for selfish reasons. I just wanted the experience of living in Africa. I did not go with the idea, I'm going to make it better for them. And uh, I'm, I'm very grateful I had that mindset when I went. CUSO taught, taught us about underdevelopment and uh, colonial history and why these countries even exist as they do today. And one of the best things they did for us is suggest we read African literature. Uh, and it's very rich and it really is a wonderful thing. And I recommend that to anybody traveling anywhere in the world. Go for the literature. Read about it. Never mind your Lonely Planet books. Read what the people living there have to say. It, it definitely enriches the entire experience. So CUSO was a volunteer organization. You went over for two years. They would pay your airfare there, take you there, take you back. Um, there might be a field staff officer if you ran into problems to help you out. Uh, you were paid uh, local wages, whatever the teachers in your state were paid. That's what you got paid. When they didn't get paid, you didn't get paid. Uh, and if you came, or when you, I shouldn't say if you came back, most of us came back. Um, when you came back, there was a bit of a resettlement allowance. So it was, a, it was a pretty good deal, but it was an absolutely wonderful, enriching, and life-changing experience. Um, I could have called this, I just, when I was asked to do a talk, I said, well, I'll just talk about Nigeria. And then I struggled with that because I really didn't know what's the point of that. I don't want to just share the wonderful time I had. So I'm going to try and steer it in a different direction afterwards. Um, I could have entitled this, Only God Know Tomorrow. I know that's grammatically incorrect, but this is what we would see on the front of big transport trucks and lorries in Nigeria. And the most, those are the most frightening words to any CUSO volunteer because the roads were the scariest part of that journey. And the only way to travel, and as I say, I traveled to every state, was to get into a taxi. The taxis would take the middle of the road, you would come to a hill, and you knew that the vehicle on the other side was also in the middle of the road, nobody was gonna give. And the slogan, only God know tomorrow, meant if it's your time, it's your time. It's the will of Allah. And uh, that was terrifying. And we'd be screaming in the back, pull over, pull over. It's a blind curve or a hill, but uh, I made it. I did learn a few lessons, and I, I think that it's still with me today. The first and most powerful, I suppose, was acceptance of things you can't change. And Nigeria is full of surprises. and. Uh, before we go, we do a lot of preparation. You're told what school you're going to go to, what your, your role will be. And I was assigned to a Methodist all-boys school in uh, what was formerly Biafra. And I thought, wow, that's going to be interesting. The more I read, the more about the swamps and the mosquitoes, it sounded a little bit, maybe not so much fun, but it would be interesting. When I arrived in Kano in northern Nigeria the very first weekend, they called me aside and said, Ken, we, we have some news we'd like to share. Uh, your posting's been cancelled. And I, I, was, I was destroyed. I, it was, what do you mean? All my books, I've sent a trunk of books over there for the library. I've told all my friends to write to me. I really need to be going to this school uh, in Biafra. And they said, no, sorry, it's, it's cancelled. No explanation, no reason, just don't worry. We'll find something else. I really, there was nothing else I could do at that point. I'm stuck, I'm in the country, I'm sort of at their mercy. And um, sure enough, they posted me to an all-girls school in the middle of the country. I could not have imagined a better place to have been put. I was given an old mission doctor's house. It was fabulous. And I think from that point on, I, I sort of learned to Accept the things you cannot change. Some things can work out and will, and just have a little bit of faith. Um, one of the things that all Kusos had to adjust to, of course, was just fear of the unknown. 
my house was beautiful, as I say, uh, but it had no windows. It had chicken wire, I guess, and shutters. So every bug, insect imaginable lived in the house with me. And for somebody coming from, you know, Western Machine and a comfortable suburb, this was a very, very difficult thing to get used to. I sat for the first two weeks in a corner watching the various bugs, cockroaches, a praying mantis just would stare down at me. And it it, it was really odd. And and the first few letters home were nothing but 10 pages about the bugs. Um, But you adapt. You get used to it, and it becomes, well, that's normal, and on you go. Uh, this is why it's wonderful. You don't go for a three-week holiday. You go for a two-year stint, and in that two years, you get the rhythm of the seasons, and you actually understand what life is like there. Uh, sickness was a constant. I don't know how much. Probably lost 30 pounds in the first few months. You would eat at one place, and 12 hours later, when you're sitting on the toilet, you say, okay, I'm not going to eat there tomorrow. I'll try the other place. And same for palm wine, which I drank daily. And when you find the place that pure palm wine is, is a gift, and it's, it's unfortunate it can't be exported, uh, I would have that every single day, and you felt refreshed. It was like a sedative, but again, you had to choose very carefully where you drank your palm wine from. Um, prejudice, bias... I experienced the reverse, being a white man in a small village, I was treated very, very well. Uh, One day cleaners came to my house from the hospital and decided after they had cleaned everything they would like to take a couple of souvenirs as gifts. And so a lot of little things I had went missing. And being me, I felt that's not right, that's not fair. And I went to the head of the hospital who had assigned the cleaners, Sister, uh, Sister Bernadette who was one tough cookie, and it's pretty amazing that, uh, maybe I'll talk a little bit about the sisters too and how how wonderful job they did. Um, She explained to everybody at the hospital, Mr. Bowl is here to help your children get an education. Um, He's not here to do you any harm. And when I got back that afternoon, everything that had been missing was lined up neatly on my doorstep and put back. I don't know whether that was the power of whatever she threatened them with, or I, I hope it was the other way. She just convinced them it was a nice thing to do, to return the goods. If I went to a bank, most of the people, if it was military, army payday, people could not write, so they just had thumbprints, and it would just be chaos. Uh, and if they saw this tall white man in the back, I was called up to the front to get my check cashed or whatever. You kind of got used to it. You didn't feel too bad. If I was in the post office, I was treated differently. I would be brought up to the front again because I was doing something. The flip side of that was you did stand out. You were different. I lived in a very small village. I haven't made it clear my situation. It was a very small village in the connected to other villages in the center of Nigeria. And I was what was known there as an Oyibo, uh, a white person. And there was a little song that children would sing and chase after me running down the street singing Oibo Pepe, Oibo Pepe, Yugo Yellow Momo, Licky Licky Pepe, which roughly translates, your mother fed too much pepper onto you and that's why your skin is white. <laughs> and uh, it was strange, but you got used to it. What I didn't like was when I remember uh, children coming up and holding up a little baby, just a little infant up to me, and the baby was screaming screaming and I the more I smiled to try and make a funny face the more terrified this little infant became and when I asked the children later they had told the baby that I was a ghost and because of the white skin and uh, that child and I said that's not a nice thing to do please don't do that anymore um, so you, you, you stood up you were different and, and you adapted to that I want to go on to my insensitivity, the insensitivity, the mistakes I made, um, because these are the things that we hope we learn from. I, uh, I saw beauty everywhere. You don't normally, this beautiful uh, little poem about the red wheelbarrow, some of you might know. I studied in university, and it's just looking at something, a simple scene, and seeing beauty. And I, after a while, I saw beauty in everything. I went, the rain on a rusty old tin can would be something you would just, uh, 
stare at and say, wow, there's just something wonderful about that. Uh, I don't know how many people here have experienced LSD. I have in my youth. And I said the time in Nigeria was like a very long, slow acid trip. Every day you felt vibrant, you felt alive, you felt totally aware of absolutely everything that was happening to you that you were experiencing. Uh, it was quite wonderful in that respect. So I would go along taking pictures at all the wonderful things I was seeing, and I saw some children out playing in the sunshine, and they just had their underwear on, it was a hot day, just like on that little poem we just heard about Nigeria. And I thought it was so beautiful. There was so much joy and happiness as they ran around. And I asked the father, who I knew from the village, do you mind if I take a picture of your children? And he said, yes, don't take the picture until they go in and change. And I said, well, no, no, I just want a picture of the children being happy and running. And he said, no, you will go back to Canada with that picture. And all that people will see is a lot of poor, naked African children who didn't have the money to have decent clothes. And his children did have some decent clothes when they went to church. And he was right. And it stuck with what I saw in its innocence, he saw from a very, very different perspective. And I guess what I'm trying to talk about here is perspectives. Um, something else I did, and it still haunts me today, uh, there was a man called... VIP. People had interesting names. Sometimes they came up. This is, again, colonial history. His mother decided to call him VIP as his name. And I thought that was kind of funny, but wasn't that unusual. But VIP had a truck, and VIP was written on the side of his truck. And I thought, wow, that is going to be a good picture. Well, the day I went over there with my friend and guardian, Agbona, uh, VIP had the fever. This is malaria, and he wasn't feeling well. And I really wanted that picture. I said, well, just, just come out just for a minute and stand by your truck. And he looked miserable. And I don't know if I can even face looking at that picture. I have it somewhere in my archives. As he stood leaning against the truck. And it wasn't just that he was sick. It was that the truck was broken. And a man like VIP, who was a simple man in the village, would never get the money. Probably it just needed maybe a new starter motor or some small adjustment. In Nigeria, the people like that, the working people, just can't go into the bank and say, look, I've got to get a new starter for my truck. I need a $1,000 loan just to get it back up and get my business going again. He was stuck. And that truck was probably just going to rust in front of his house till there was nothing left. And that's part of the inequality and part of the tragedy and part of the sadness. So maybe I'm glad I took the picture because it's an image in my mind that shows the kind of the unfairness and the... the Unbalance that we, we have here. For us, it's nothing. Your car breaks down, you get it fixed. Period. That's the end of it. <sighs> Distractions. I was invited to a, a party, and the party was for the doctors. They had mission doctors, they had doctors from the Philippines, and I was invited to go. And I lack confidence. That's one of the reasons I went to Nigeria, to build up my self-confidence about who I am and what are my abilities and capabilities. And I thought, well, I really shouldn't go to that party. It's just for doctors, and I'm only a teacher. And the sister said, well, Ken, it'll be a great party. There'll be lots of good food. Come to the party. And I started walking very reluctantly until I came to a little dirt road in my village. And I saw a taxi coming down the road with its bright headlights. And it's as if the headlights were like a laser beam that just cut me off from what it was I was going to do. I just had to cross that road and get into the compound where all the doctors were having a wonderful time. And I stopped. Those lights just cut into my path, and I didn't make it. I turned around, and I went home. And of course, the next day, Ken, where were you? It was a great party. You would have loved it. And I think today, those headlights, again, a lesson, but... Sometimes I think all of us can understand. Sometimes the smallest thing will put you off course. A phone call or a comment somebody makes to you. Oh, you can't do that or whatever. And you, you let that sink in and throw you off what you really wanted to do. So again, I'm grateful for that car that came down the road because I will never forget it. And when I question whether I should or should not do something, I'm more inclined to push myself a little harder now to say, yeah, don't be put off by somebody else's 
comments or something trivial that you've made into a big deal. Uh, humility. I used to go, I, when I was in Nigeria, I was on a bit of a, a quest for to find out about God and Jesus and everything else. I mean, I, I haven't been to church for 50 years. I should make that clear. Uh, this is the first time I've actually found a church that I think I might fit in at. It wasn't a part of my life, but I did go on a bit of a quest to find out. I was around missionaries and the wonderful people who were doing good work, who truly believed in what they were doing and lived the part, and uh, I was quite inspired by them. But there was an Indian couple um, from Goa, and they came as missionaries as well to teach sciences and other things in the schools, but also to do little uh, sessions at their home. And they said, Ken, you should come out to one of our sessions. We just sit in a circle and we talk and we pray. And I thought, well, sounds interesting. I've never done that before. So I went to their house and somebody called Brother Abraham, a man from India also, talked about the things he had done wrong, maybe. The way he had laughed at Nigerians and then afterwards felt bad that that's not the reason for him coming there was to laugh. I, the joke was... How do you know if a mechanic is good? It's by the number of bumps on his head from the times he's been hit with a wrench over his head every time he makes a mistake. So somebody with a lot of bumps would be a very good mechanic. And there is a funny side to that, but at the same time he felt it was kind of wrong that he did. So he, people are making confessions about their shortcomings, their wrongdoings. Um, I think this is quite wonderful. These people were as sincere as I've ever met a group of people. They were, they were speaking from the heart. Well, the nuns were a little confused about this. The Catholic nuns who basically ran the school, ran the church, ran the hospital. What's going on at this house? And why is Ken going over there to attend these sessions? So they sent over Sister Vera, who was a young sister just in from England, uh, with a purity of heart that I just haven't seen before. She was the real thing. She had not yet been hardened by the reality of Nigeria and how you've got to toughen up to fight back against the bureaucracy and the thieves and so on. Sister Vera came in, sat there, listened to everybody praying, and then spoke up and said, I came here with doubt in my heart. I came here to question the motives of these people. I came here to judge all of you. And what I've seen is a wonderful, truly beautiful thing, even though this was quite a different approach to religion that they were practicing in the Catholic Church. And she spoke with such truth and simplicity and beauty, the fact that she made this confession in front of everybody, that she had come almost as a spy, just stuck with me. Wow, that took courage. She could have just said, thank you, that was beautiful, gone back away. But she went and she, she talked about what she had done wrong and about maybe the poison in her own heart for wanting to judge people. And it was a very beautiful thing. I, I don't think I can ever quite tell that story uh, the way it touches me, but I was deeply touched. And uh, Sister Vera soon found it was too comfortable in the mission house and went off for a, more of a hardship post. Um, celebration. I've never danced as much in my entire life as I danced in Nigeria. When there was a party, when there was a band, when there was music, to be safe, the roads were dangerous at night. The, the roads were not safe at night. Thieves would set up roadblocks, you couldn't go out. So it meant, if you're having a party, the party goes till dawn, till it's light again. And believe me, that's a lot of fun. Um, there was music everywhere, and these are people who didn't go to some fancy music school. These are people who somehow could just pick up an instrument and play. Um, I don't know if I can come back sometime, maybe some evening, and share a little Nigerian music and a few photos and give a, a different talk. Uh, because the music was truly, truly wonderful. You could not help but move. But each song might be 15 minutes long. You're, you're, you've got a bottle of beer in one hand and you're just dancing. And it was, a, it was truly beautiful. There was so much joy and happiness, laughter, hugging, deep caring for each other that... It was just, just so wonderful to feel that every day and see that. I spent almost eight years in Japan, the other end of the scale in terms of wealth and efficiency and cleanliness and 
the best food in the world and so on. I did not see that joy anywhere. It was a real, real difference. Um, jumping around here, I guess. I'll get to the last part, the sharing maybe, that, that maybe meant the most to me. Uh, when the students graduated, they would have to put their money together, and they, these were poor people, but they would put enough money together to buy one goat or maybe two goats if it was a big graduating class. So that the next day, everybody could have rice and goat or goat pepper soup and feed and celebrate these students completing. And by the way, the exams were based on West, Africa, West African Examination Council. Most Canadian students I know would never have a chance of passing. These were very, very high standards. They were doing Shakespeare. They were doing very, very difficult uh, challenges. And uh, so anybody who did graduate, wow, they've worked hard. They've studied. And these are classrooms without any of the facilities. Goats would wander in and out. There were no windows. There might have been a chalkboard. Uh, there, there were a lot of shortages. We did not have the fancy displays that we have and so on, but still, these students studied. Uh, anyway, they said, Ken, if you're going to share in the goat meat, you have to watch the slaughter of the goats. Well, why not? And they took me up to a hill where the men of the village started. The two goats were tethered there. And I'm an animal lover. I'm, I'm a softie. I have a little pussycat at home I love to hold and hug. And even the goats seem like cute pets. So to stand there and be asked to watch the ritual slaughtering of the goats and the bloodletting was again a wonderful experience I'm grateful of. I, I know where my meat comes from. I, many of you I'm sure have had that experience. Um, but it was powerful and to see that everybody in the village depending on their rank, when it came down to the part that I still resonates with me, when it came down to the intestines and one man just carefully did this to the intestines to get all the excrement out so that he go, man, he had the, the, his face was lit up because he knew how tasty his soup was going to be when he got home and actually was able to cook an absolutely wonderful stew or soup with every little piece of that goat that was used. That was marvelous. And uh, I enjoyed, when I had my little one-inch cube of goat meat the next day, it was good. And I felt I had earned the right to eat it with them. Last part, I guess, uh, I don't have a timer, I, I forgot to set it, but uh, I, I'm going to switch gears here in a minute, but sharing, that was part of the sharing, the goats. Um, if you were wandering at night and you saw a friend in the street, some of the local people, not the teachers and others, just the local people living there, sort of took me under their wing. Uh, one of the reasons was they liked to drink and I was a good way of them getting free drinks. They would drive me out to the most remote village in the area, take me to the house of the chief, knock on the door, and tell the chief we've bought the white man, get some beer, please. And uh, I'm an easy drunk. I enjoyed it just as much as they did. And it was interesting, actually, to see the, the rituals. They would go to the, uh, uh, the senior, of course, the eldest man, usually the chief, pour a little bit of libations onto the ground, and then they would give it to the, who was the best hunter of those people, and he would be the one who could distribute the drinks to us. And there was something great about seeing these traditions still alive then. I imagine they still are today, but things that we so very foreign from our way of life and our rituals and what our bloody televisions tell us to do. This was quite, quite refreshing. It was real. Uh, they had another thing which was wonderful, which I think we would really benefit from, which was called same age group meeting. And that was when students or young people, everybody was grouped in the village according to their age range. So if you were, say, 18 to 21, you would be in one group and the next group. And there'd be regular meetings at annual celebrations or funerals, whatever, where you would gather your group together and you'd be held accountable. And if somebody had a chance of going to university but didn't have the money, it was up to his age group to raise the money to help that person get the extra education and so on. So it was a real way of community and looking out for each other, looking after each other. And again, I was honored to be allowed to. Because I lived in the village and I wasn't one of the rich expats with a chauffeur and a cook, I was welcome to participate in any of their ritual celebrations. 
This was a good thing. Uh, on the not-so-good side, of course, there was a little war between my village and the next village. And they would go out for visit the medicine doctor who would cut their chest with a razor and tell them, okay, now you're invincible, the bullets will stop. And I'm saying, Charlie, you're my friend. Those razor cuts are not going to stop a bullet. And Charlie, no, 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 our juju is more powerful than their juju. So you're still dealing with a new world and you're dealing with superstition as well, heavily superstition. And maybe that's an area that does need a little work. Um, one more thing I did, I, I'm, I'm going to come back to the last point. Nigeria got a lot of oil money, as you know, and they were given money. The government got the money to buy as many books as possible. Well, of course, the only people benefiting were the publishers, the publishing companies in England, who wanted to sell as many textbooks as possible. And my friends in the village would talk about when they first, if you bought a book, the mother wouldn't let you touch the book until you'd washed your hands. And then maybe the book might be covered with a, a special cover to protect that book. Well, once everybody was given free education, free books, everything was for free, nobody cared anymore. And there was a bit of a loss. But anyway, they had a pile of books in a storage room, and they needed it put into order. So you had your science, and you had your math, and you had your English, and you had your ranges. And I said, I could do that. Uh, up to then, I think I'd been pretty useless. I really had contributed nothing. I had a lot of fun, but I hadn't done anything worthwhile. So here's one thing I can do for the school. I'll put your books in order. I know how to do that. I've worked in an office. So I went in, I spent a Saturday shelving all the books according to subject matter, grade level, and so on, and walked out feeling pretty smug and pretty proud. And the next day, the principal thanked Mr. Ken Bull for the wonderful job he had done. And I'm sitting there feeling, thank you, thank you. And then one of the other teachers, I said, you know, you could do that. He said, oh, no, I could never do that. I said, of course you can. It's just, I just put them this way. Oh, I, I couldn't do that. You can do that. I couldn't do that. And I realized the biggest, stupidest mistake I had made, instead of sharing this, instead of working with a couple of Nigerian teachers who I could show how I was doing this, I did it to get all the credit for myself. And what a loss, what a waste, what a stupid thing for me to have done. And uh, at a cost. And in fact, instead of helping, I made people feel worse. Oh, only, only Ken or our visitors from overseas can do that. We can't do that. The silliest thing, but something that sticks. Water. The village, we had rainy season in Nigeria, and it was wonderful. We, it was a celebration. When the rains came down and the thunder lightning, you wanted to run outside and get soaked. It was a wonderful feeling. Uh, a day like today, you'd, you'd probably welcome a heavy rainstorm. Um, now, my house was built for a mission doctor, and it had eaves troughs. It had sort of aluminum roof and eaves troughs leading to a great big cistern, a huge tank. And during the rainy season, there was enough rain and water coming down, feeding the eavesdrops to fill up this tank, so that when the dry season came, Harmattan, and the dust from the north came down, and everything was covered thick in dust in your nostrils, and everything was dirty, and your throat was dry, and you needed that palm wine more than anything. Um, I had water. And I had water because I learned to ration my water. I could use one bucket of water a day. I would lower a bucket into this well, pull it up. If I needed to drink, I had a water filtration system, a little aluminum tank with a couple of candles, and I could put that in, and the water would drip out, and it'd be good enough that I could drink. Not often cold, because the electricity was just every once in a while, but it didn't matter as long as you had water, clean water. Uh, I would just do a few dishes at a time, uh, washing clothes was a bit of a, a challenge, but you would use that. At the very end of the day, the last thing you did with your bucket of water, what remained of your water, or the dirty water from whatever you used, you didn't throw it out, you flushed the toilet once a day, if that. And I knew that if I did this this carefully, I could last through. Well, nobody else in the village had these troughs. They had a big rain barrel, and when that rain barrel was empty, there was no water for anybody. And I think we're going to start within the next few years to hear a lot more about water and what it means. Because like that poem that was just read, 
it ended with when there will be water in our tap. My village had no running water, no tap water. The girls would go, girls from the girls' school would go down to the, a very, very filthy little pond and fill up a bucket, put it on their head with a rolled coil and just walk perfectly straight without spilling a drop. And this, we're talking a bucket of water is heavy on their heads and walk back so they could wash their clothes to be clean for school the next day or whatever else they needed to do. Uh, The younger children in the village, the mothers would send them down and they would come back struggling. They would learn, the girls, from a very young age to bring back a bucket of water on their head. And when that went dry, somebody would drive a little further in a truck and siphon off dirty, filthy river water and come drive through the streets of town and sell it to whoever had the money to get some water from them. When I came home from Nigeria for a year, I could not stand. I hated flushing the toilet if I only urinated, but a ridiculous waste of water. I could not stand to have somebody turn on the water to get it colder. It just, it bothered me. And even today, it's, it's there. Um, I think it's something we take for granted. And if I was going to end on one point, I've given you a lot of trivial little stories about some of my experiences that touched me. The only thing that counts is water. The children who were sick, who had their stomachs swollen out, the children with malaria and fever. Um, And it's not a difficult thing. It would just take a government that cared enough about a poor village to drill deep and pull up, they could get water, it was there, but nobody had the, like the man with the broken truck, nobody had the resources, nobody had a way of getting water. Uh, And it was truly, truly a sad thing, and of course the worst part was I would not share my water because I know I couldn't. If I gave my water away, it would be gone in a week, and I had no children to go down, and I would not survive on the kind of water they were bringing back, and it was a very hard thing to say no I'm sorry that's my water I can't give you my water I need my water Um, that was painful but I knew it was necessary as well Uh, I have no idea you're looking at watch maybe I've already gone over time I had another completely different strand and maybe that's enough have I been 20 minutes um, I hope to come back someday Uh, I have another story I would love to share basically it was it ended with uh, the Abraham Maslow's uh, triangle of showing what it is, where we are uh, in terms of our basic needs. Anybody who's studied uh, Maslow's hierarchy knows that at the bottom, we need water, we need food. Next, we need safety. Next, we need maybe love and care. Next, we need maybe a little bit of esteem. I was stuck at the esteem level. I needed to go to Nigeria so that I could feel I had accomplished something in my life. I did something. I stuck to it. I survived. And the next level, which sadly, according to Maslow, only 2% of the people reach, is something called self-actualization. And that's where we, and I imagine everybody here is aiming for that, take our lives and try and do something good with them. Whatever hobby it is, whatever interest, whether it's photography or flower arranging or gardening or painting or anything, housekeeping, cooking, baking, whatever it is, trying to do it to the best of our ability. And that's something we have the luxury of because we have water, we have safety, we have comfort, we have security, we have homes, we have everything we need. We can indulge our fantasies at the top level. But we go back to that poem, That child is still waiting for running water in his village in Nigeria. And how is it that I can indulge my fantasies and and have such a wonderful time thinking, how will I self-actualize? How will I be a better, happier, richer, more interesting person when all those people are there without water? Just before his death, Maslow added one more point to the top of this pyramid. It's not there. And it was called transcendence. And by transcendence, he meant after we have self-actualized, then there is another level when we actually start caring about the other people and want to devote our lives to seeing how, seeing the unity in life. It's not just me and my glory, 
but it's the unity of all of us. What can I do to maybe help those people who are still at the bottom struggling to get water? So thank you very much. Okay.